If you're like me, you love and miss that golden era of Christian music. From the Jesus music of the 70s, the monster vocalists of the 80s, and the creativity and risk-taking of the 90s and early 2000s. I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I was privileged to be smack dab in the middle of this crazy and beautiful thing that we call CCM. As a member of the group for him, I got to know so many great people with even greater stories. And I don't want to keep these stories to myself. That's why I created One Degree of Andy, so you can join me as I reminisce with my friends and colleagues. My hope is that as you experience these conversations, you'll go back and listen to that golden era of music and fall in love all over again, just like I have. This is the One Degree of Andy podcast. I am super excited about the conversation you're about to hear with my good friend Jay DeMarcus. I've known Jay since the mid-90s when he was in a CCM band called East to West, and they actually opened for, for him on one of our tours. But it was his career with the country band Rascal Flats that made him a household name. Now, Jay gets pretty raw and honest about the road he's traveled and drops some great advice for anyone wanting to become an artist, so I know you're going to like this episode. But before we get to that, I wanted to say hello to a few of our listeners DJ, who was inspired by the conversation I had with Travis Cottrell on the Here, There, and Everywhere episode. That was a fun one. Randy, who became a premium subscriber because of my podcast with Steve Archer. And Walter, who listened to my conversation with Jeremy Dibler of FFH and was reminded how much their music meant to him when he was a missionary in South America. How cool is that? You all just continue to bless me with your testimony, so please keep them coming. And I mentioned being a premium subscriber. Go to andychrisman.com or click on the link in the description of the podcast to get early access to podcasts and exclusive audio and video content. I appreciate all of you who have subscribed so far. and Honestly, the response has been a little bit overwhelming. Okay, before I get too emotional, let's get to my conversation with Jay. So somewhere around, I don't know, 93, 94, 95, sometime around then, there was a duo that signed to Benson, which is our label, called East to West. And um, people probably don't know, when you go out on tour, usually you'll take out an opening act that is on your label for promotion so that the label will kind of make that happen. And that's where we met Neil Coomer and Jay DeMarcus. And you guys came out, traveled with us, opened for us. We had a blast on tour. So much fun. And then one day, we're out playing golf. This is the memory that I have. One day we're out playing golf and you said, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go do something else. You can tell this story better than me. I'm going to go write country music with my cousin. And mm-hmm. I remember my response was, oh, yeah, great. You go do that. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you'll make it. Um, and my gosh, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm not in the music industry because, you know, uh, your career has just been one that they'll write books about. Oh, well, and you know, I, I want to be a man that you would read about. Oh, no. Okay. I see what you a did there. A thousand years from now. <laughs> so welcome to the one degree podcast, my friend, Jay DeMarcus. It's, it's so kind of you to come by and, and just spend some time well, doing this. My honor to be here. Thanks for asking me, man. It's really great to yeah. see you and to uh, see that you've grown up and have your own podcast. I'm this all grown amazing. up. I love yeah. it. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had some fun times back then. We had a great. Great. I mean, there was a great run there of about four years. It was really awesome being label mates together. Uh-huh. I actually met you the first time when I was still in Lee at Winterfest in Florida. Oh, no way. Or him came there uh, while you guys were on your second album, I think. Okay. So that would have been Same. like 92, yeah. 91, 92, something like yeah. that. Winterfest in, in Florida. Where would that have been? I think it was in Tampa. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Okay. We were down there. I was in Danny Murray's group and we were doing the praise oh, and yeah. worship and then you guys were doing the yeah the concert there yeah and so uh, uh if you don't know that's lee university lee college back then yeah back then lee university now that was a hotbed for was. people coming out of that group or out of lee into christian music it really was I, it was like uh it was like the farm club for truth almost yeah, you know yeah, there were a bunch right. of people that mm-hmm. left there and went on to truth and i actually this is a funny story roger breeland came to north cleveland church of god and the piano player at the time, I forget his name that was with Truth, but um, 
he'd been there for a long time and he was transitioning uh-huh. out. He was going to go uh, on the road with Alicia at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I auditioned for Truth and got the gig. And about a week later, Benson offered Neil and I a record deal. And so Roger called me back that week and he was like, you want to get on the bus? You ready to go? <laughs> and I was like, well, I got a little hiccup. I yeah. got a record deal. And he hung up, he hung yeah. up on me. No way. He did. No way. Did. Did, have it's you like, ever talked to him again about hello? it? Oh, yeah. 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 He laughed. He's incredible. Like, well, because keyboard players were like gold. Yeah. Especially in truth, because that was either the drummer or the, the keyboard player were typically the band leaders yeah. and had the hardest job of anybody. So to, to be in a group like truth and be a keyboard player, man, Roger would, oh, I mean, yeah. he would pay anything to keep those guys around. Well, I mean, it was like I told you before, like you guys were like our heroes, the truth. And then you transition out of truth into, uh, for him. So, I mean, it's just something we all aspired to be. And Danny had a great group of kids there. I mean, he, he took the best of the best and I was very fortunate. It's the best training that I had as a young yeah. man coming out of, Columbus, Ohio, not really knowing how to get started, you uh-huh. know, and I grew up really, really poor, so I didn't have money to go to college. Danny auditioned me at uh, Winterfest in Indianapolis in 1990, and by the next week, I was at Lee University with a scholarship for music, wow. so, I mean, God was, like, all over my situation, getting me out of Ohio into the music industry, and so I, I've always marveled at how the pieces connected and came together. Yeah. You know, it's sad that there's not those opportunities as much anymore, like Danny Murray and Harvest and uh, Truth and Continental Singers and um, places where you could go and just be a road dog for a couple of years and and work it out, you know, just decide if, first of all, if you wanted to do it. And second of all, if you could survive this type of this type of industry. And no doubt. And yeah. So you also learn how to be a performer and entertainer. Right. You know, the problem with the, I, I've been on all the shows from The Voice to American Idol, America's Got Talent. I've, I've done them all. And I always get asked, is there a negative aspect to being on a show like that and having come from something like that? And I always say that you don't put the sweat equity in. You don't get in front of a crowd. You don't learn how to become an entertainer. Yeah. And even though we were all singing Christian music, there's an element of what you do that's mm-hmm. entertainment. Right. There, there just is. That's right. And if you can't be in front of a crowd and be able to read them and be able to lead them and be able to take them somewhere on on a journey, I don't think you have any business like just being dropped in front of a crowd and being expected to be a professional. Winning a contest like these kids do, they're yeah. woefully unprepared to yeah. be entertainers. Well, you got to have a spark, right? You got to have that it. Mm-hmm. For people to want to connect with you, but it's working that out night after night after night. You know, you could just go back to the stories of bands, you know, um, that were. Boy, I just watched the the country music uh, documentary again, the the Ken Burns thing. Oh yeah, I watched yeah. that again for the second time the other day, and it just you just go back and look at those guys that you know, like Elvis, like Johnny Cash, like mm-hmm. um, you know the these guys that would just literally get in a station wagon. And play night after night after night after night after night. And they weren't immediately big hits, but yeah. they worked it out on the road. And, uh, you know, again, I just think. The and inter- driven. They had the drive. Right. Yeah. We live in this age of instant gratification. Uh-huh. It doesn't work the first time. A lot of people give up. Yeah. Back then, they had no choice. They just kept going. They kept right. their nose to the grindstone. Yeah. They gave their life for it. And if they didn't make any money for 20 years, so be it. Yeah. That's what they did. Um, so. You know, one of the one of my great memories the last couple of years was uh, seeing you and Neil again. Yeah, at, at uh, we we all gathered for Don Cook's we did uh, little party, mm-hmm. and we've already talked. We've had Don on the on the podcast already and talked about his healing from cancer. But uh, before that, we kind of all gathered around because we weren't sure if Don was going to make it another few months. And so, uh, uh, go back. If you're listening to this, go back and listen to the Dave Clark, Don Cook yeah. podcast and get that story. It's, it's incredible. But Don, one of the great songwriters, musicians, and producers in Christian music history, uh, just had a hand in so many of us as artists and getting oh, yeah. us started and, and writing He's the reason songs I'm in Nashville. for us. Yeah. I mailed my demo tape to every publishing company I could think of when I was writing. Neil was singing my demos. I don't even think I've told you this before, but... Neil and I were in Harvest together, and he just sang the way that I wanted to hear songs sang. Oh, wow. So I would write a song, and I would say, will you sing this demo for me? We went in the studio and did 
five or six demos. I started mailing them off to publishers. Michael English actually came to Lee Day. I played piano for him, and Danny let me drive him to the airport. And I said, man, when I come to town in a few years, I'd love to look you up. He was so gracious and kind to me and gave me a bunch of phone numbers to some publishing companies in town. He had no reason to do it. And I never will forget on my way back from the airport, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got like real numbers and addresses to publishers in town. And one of those was a contact at Benson Records. And somehow my demo landed up in Don Cook's hands. And I got a call on the payphone in the dorm hallway. And some kid bangs on my door and goes, there's a Don Cook on the phone. <laughs> I look down the hallway and the receiver's just dangling against the wall. So I take off running down the hall and it's Don Cook on the other end. He goes, man, I, I got your tape and um, I've been listening to it and I love your band. Like, what are you guys called? And I said, really not a band. I just want to be a songwriter. And he said, oh, that's too bad. Whoever that is singing, you guys should talk about being a band. I'd love to talk to you. So I went back to Neil and I told him the story. And Neil said, well, we ought to drive over and just see what happens and give it a shot. So, And we lived on the road for a long time together in that in uh-huh. Harvest. So we knew that we could yeah. exist on the road together. And then um, we came to Nashville, did a few demos, and Andy Ivey came down while we were doing vocals one day and he was like, stop what you're doing. Let's go upstairs and talk about a deal. Wow. So Andy was the guy that signed you. Yeah. Okay. So Andy was our, he was the guy that was our first day in our guy. Yeah. Very, very special place in our hearts. (laughs) So, yeah. So did he, so was he your A&R after? He was our A&R guy, but he left shortly after that. And then then Bill Baumgart jumped in, right? Bill Baumgart came in, but I, I mean, Neil and I, our first reaction was, and this is so true. I'm so glad I get to tell you this. We were like, oh my gosh, we're on the same label as for him and we've got the same producer. This is amazing. <laughs> oh man. I remember, man, I just remember so many artists coming, uh, getting signed at Benson, like in the years after we had started having some pretty good success. Yeah. And it was so cool to see like what we were doing, influencing this next round of artists and and again, yeah, using the same producers, oh, yeah. a lot of the same songwriters, and same drum sounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> especially with Bill. Yeah, Bill had did. a very specific way yeah. of, of of doing all that stuff. But um, but yeah, I was just I started all that to say it was just so cool to see you and Neil together again. Yeah, and and play some of those songs and just takes us just took us back to those days on the road and hearing those great songs on the radio. You guys just still sounded amazing. Of course, you know, doing what you're doing. Um, and, and the career that you've had, just staying really sharp as a, as a, as an artist. And of course, Neil's, you know, had a great career in New York Yeah, and doing, singing doing on Saturday there. Night Live yeah, on tour with Cindy Lauper and singing background for Elton John. I mean, wow. he's, it's been amazing. You know, I, I was sad when that night was over because Me it was too. just a teaser and I love singing with Neil so much. And we sort of fell right back into place. We were at my house the night before just going over the tunes and, uh-huh. It was so special and neat to be able to sing those songs again. And I'll tell you, what what stuck with me was no matter the years and the miles apart, no matter how long you spend away from each other, uh, those tunes, the anointing still stays on yeah. those songs. And It was powerful. Yeah. 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 And just, just like with you guys, you know, I know you're not on the road regularly either, but when the, you guys get back together and that, that little intangible spark or magic or whatever uh-huh. it is you guys have together and whatever it was Neil and I had together, uh, it stays. It's yeah. it. It doesn't go away. Yeah. And so it was really neat to be able to do that with him. That's you know again, it's something I kind of miss. And you, you can speak to this now because you're running a a Christian record label now. But I, I miss those days back in the early '90s, mid '90s, where there weren't quite as many artists out there. I mean, it was I know it, the 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 herd was a little thinner because. You just had really great people like Andy Ivey and Bill Baumgart and mm-hmm. Troy Van Leer and, you know, uh, John Mays. His name comes up a lot in these podcasts, yeah, guys like that, uh, uh, that, that could find these really unique, wonderful artists that when they heard them, they're like that. Oh, yeah. That's going to be the next big thing right there. And, but there weren't as many on the labels back then, you know, and now it's just a, it, it's a different world. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything negative about it, but you know, everybody can put their music on Spotify. Everybody can write a song. Everybody can produce it for not a lot of money. And it's such a, it's such a bigger pool out there to try and get noticed. 
back in the day, if you were great and you had a sound, you're in. You'd rise to the top. That's right. Yeah, I, I just feel like it. Uh, our our batting average was so much better back yes. then because there you our, go. that's a great our, way to say it. Yeah. Our standards were higher. I mm-hmm. mean, they really were. They, you know, you would find out very quickly whether or not you had staying power, and and it just, uh, you know, like you said, for all the reasons that you said, it's it's tougher today to rise above the noise. But I still believe that true talent and great songs still win, and that's why I'm still in the business because I. I still believe at the end of the day that a great song will find its way through. A, a world-class artist will find his or her way through the noise. So Yeah, and you probably have to just dig a little harder now, don't you? You do. Yeah, there's a lot of people yeah. that are out there, like, you know, like, like we just said, that, that, that have the ability to make music and get their, get their music out there for people to hear. Um, yeah, I, I would think you just have to wade through a lot of artists to find that, those special ones. And you found a few. Already. Yeah. 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 We've been fortunate. Um, we've only been in business a few short years, but we've already, you know, been stacking up some wins. And the first example I can think of is Consumed by Fire, the three brothers from. I love those guys. I mean, they're the best. I had. And, bre- okay. So I had breakfast with them. Oh, did you? Yeah. I had breakfast with them like four years ago because they're, they're Oklahoma boys. Yeah. And somebody, I think it was my pastor, had run into, they'd come to our church. And he met them after the message and they were like, yeah, we're musicians. And, and he was like, oh, you should come meet Andy and come to our church. And so set up a, a lunch with us. And yeah. then as I was talking to them, just like, oh, these guys, they're not going to join a worship team. These guys are, they are going to do something really special. Just their personality. Oh, it's amazing. Just hanging out with them. I'm mm-hmm. just like, even if your music sucks, <laughs> yeah, I, I want to be around you guys. Like I'd come to your concert because of their energy. I'm so glad. That you signed them. Me too. I'm excited about that. I them. feel very lucky to be their label partner. Uh, Jordan is a preacher too, man. I yeah. mean, he will bring the fire down. It's it's amazing to hear him. And Caleb has such a compelling voice. I just, and they're amazing writers. I've been mm-hmm. in the room with them a bunch and they're just, well, we wrote uh, Jason Crabb's Good Morning Mercy together. I mean, oh, it's wow. just, you know, it's so wonderful and refreshing to be around guys like that that really get it, understand the hard work, put the hard work in. So I'm really happy for their success. So obviously, most of the people that see your name pop up on this podcast are not going to think east to west. <laughs> now you'd be amazed how many come through the autograph line. With well, east okay. to west records, though yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a it was a shorter period of your career. Yeah. But what dwarfed that really was was your venture into Rascal Flats, and yeah. uh, so I go back to my kind of my opening. Uh, you know, as we're getting started here. Just remember being on a golf course with you. Yeah, and I think I think the tour we were on had just finished. Yeah, and well, Gary maybe, hadn't quite come to town yet. I just knew that things were shifting in east to west. Neil and I were sort of going our own separate ways and growing apart a little bit. Still dear friends to this day. One of my best friends on the planet. Love him to pieces. But we came to a crossroads to where we really had to look at ourselves and ask if we wanted to keep doing it. And I had some other things always was raised on both Christian music, gospel music, but my dad was a rock and roller and a, and a country guy too. And so I was on a steady diet of both country rock and roll and gospel. My dad was playing in the bars on Friday and Saturday and my mom was dragging me to church on Sunday. Yeah. So I had the best of both worlds and there were a lot of things that I loved about country music and I loved its honesty. I loved the depth of the lyrics. And so I wanted to just try to explore that a little bit because I dabbled in writing some of that in college. And started running in some really heavy circles here in town of some heavy hitter musicians and songwriters and things. And the more I networked and the more I got to know people, I ended up eventually getting a job with Shelly Wright as her musical director. Mm, right. And um, that's how I hired Joe Don. He was, he's from Oklahoma, too. And he came in and played guitar and sang. And we immediately, it immediately clicked and just... I fell in love with him and we had all of the same influences growing up and his mom dragged him to church on Sunday too, but he loved playing in honky tonks and loved country music. Vince Gill was his idol and sang a lot like Vince, had a pure yeah. first tenor high voice. And I was like, man, if there's anybody that could sing above Gary, <laughs> this kid could do it. So yeah. we started playing together in clubs and not even thinking for a second we were going to turn into Rascal Flats. We just did it for the love of playing the music and to be out and, you know, playing with a bunch of our friends that were great musicians. And we started develop a, a fo- to develop a following downtown. And the next thing you know, a few months later, 
people are lined up around the building to come in and see us play these little dive bars. And it's like, what is going on here? And a producer came in, Mark Bright, and he came to see us maybe a handful of times. And one night after it was over, he was like, I'd love for you to come by the office Monday and let's talk about what you guys should be doing. We were kind of, you know, we weren't really sure what we wanted to do. Jodon had just been to town for a couple of years. We met with him and we decided to go in and cut a couple demos and somehow it landed in Dan Huff's hands. Oh, wow. And Dan Huff called uh, Randy Goodman at the time, who was the head of Lyric Street, which was Disney's country division Uh here in town. Yeah. And um, they offered us a deal and we'd only been together about six months and got a record deal. And had you been writing a lot? Were you doing a lot of cover songs or were you writing mostly a lot of covers, your own stuff? Mostly covers that people knew and could uh-huh. sing along to, but we did them our way. Like Gary had a really big R&B influence, so uh-huh. he would sing a Merle Haggard song with all these runs in it. Yeah. And people were like, what is going on? Like, there's something different and so cool about uh-huh. this. But we do, you know, we do Superstitious by Stevie Wonder and turn right around and do Just Sit Here and Drink by Merle Haggard. Yeah. And <laughs> somehow it felt like it went together. Huh. And we had this really unique spin on country music at the time now it's all over the place but right we were kind of the first of our breed to like meld r&b and country and gospel and all of that together and gary definitely had a very unique sound for the time mm-hmm. you know and i think it was just the one thing that set us apart and the blend that we had was so unique and so pure and gary and i of course are cousins but it felt like joe don was family the way that he locked in and saying yeah. The tenor with us was just so natural and pure, and it's special when you find that, isn't it? Is. it? There's a there is there's something so special about a family band, yeah, where their voices are similar and they mesh and they just you know they 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 think the yeah. same way. But to add someone from outside the family in, mm-hmm. you know, you've got something when when everything just kind of meshes that way, don't you? You really do. From the first moment that we sang together on stage, I never will forget, Gary was kind of upset because the guitar player we'd been using had the flu and couldn't show up, so I called Joe Don to fill in. And Joe Don, or Gary walked up to me and said, who, who is that? And I said, well, that's Joe Don. I've been telling you about him. He was like, oh, God. we had to play from nine to three back then. Wow. And he said, if this is terrible, I'm leaving. And I was like, dude, you can't leave me here by myself. Like, <laughs> this is going to be great. Just give him a chance. Yeah. First song we sang was a song by Shenandoah called Church on the Cumberland Road. And the first course we sang, we looked at each other like, what in the world was that, man? That was <laughs> awesome. What just happened? And so Gary walks over to me. I'm at the piano. I played piano with us at the time. We uh-huh. had a guy that was playing bass. He comes over and he goes, I don't know what that was, man, but I got to have some more of that. And from that first song and that first moment, we all knew that we had something very uniquely special. Wow. And it's just like you said, it's that buzz that you can't deny, mm-hmm. that thing that goes. That so I you- remember being at GMA week, um, like 2000, maybe 2000, 2001, yeah. maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, when once you had left Benson and left East West, you went that direction of course for him just continued to go this direction so we didn't really see each other a lot um mm-hmm. and i remember walking in we, we we'd always stay at the renaissance hotel that's oh, yeah. kind of where the you know at that time gma gospel music week was all in that area and i turned on the tv and uh praying for daylight <laughs> came on and i was like oh my gosh that's jay you kidding me because i just i just have this memory of you right in the back of a yeah, car I- and I was like, that's Jay. Oh, my God. I told Jack. I'm like, look, it's Jay DeMarcus. Like, he did it. I remember yeah. going back to the conversation. Like, he did it. He, he's in a country band, and they're doing great. Yeah. Incredible. That was a weird time. We were just wanting to make another record. Yeah. We were scared to death. Because that was on your second record. That was the first record. Oh, that was the first record. single okay. first record. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That video is a little creepy now. We were riding around the neighborhood <laughs> giving kids televisions. <laughs> I watch that now and it's it's a a different era. (laughs) We were innocent back then. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it was so when I look back on that time now and Christian music has always been my foundation. I I started there. I grew up in it. I loved it. I know you had Rick Florian on like Mm Whiteheart was one of my favorite bands ever. My mom really censored my music intake. When I 
come home with an ACDC record, she'd listen to it. She'd come back and go, this isn't going to be in the house. I'd be <laughs> like, all right. Highway to Hell probably isn't the best song to listen to. <laughs> You're right. But she censored my music uh, intake. So I found all these alternatives in Christian music with Petra and Whiteheart and and rock bands are what I really loved because I was a huge Journey fan, Chicago. Yeah. I loved big ballads. And so I found so much great music in Christian that was that not a lot of people knew back then how great it was. And what's weird about that, I say all that to say, most of the people that were making those records back in those days that I grew up loving now make the country records here in Nashville. Yeah. All of the studio right. guys, all of the session uh-huh. guys, all of the producers. So were you, so when you were touring with us, was Mark Childers playing bass for us during that time? No, he was not. You what had you Chapman. Okay. Yeah. So he had already left then. Yeah. But, and, uh, and Glenn Pierce was playing yeah, guitar. Yep. Mm-hmm. You had, you did the one tour that, that we were on, um, Mark Niemer was playing drums. So that was like, I think that was the ride tour. The ride tour. Yeah. Somebody just posted a video of that yeah. where I just, I can't watch that stuff because we did like dance moves. and Sal Oliveri's playing. Uh, yeah. Sal. Yeah. Oh, Sal's doing great. Yeah. Man, what a great career really producer great. he's having right now. But uh, I, I think about that. I think about how many people uh, were on our bus during those yeah. days that now have gone on to. So I mentioned Mark Childers, mm-hmm. who's now Carrie Underwood's. It started out with Carrie Underwood yeah. after she won American Carrie Idol. Carrie Underwood's and, drug dealer. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hired Mark in his first country gig ever with Shelly Wright. He played bass in our band. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Man, that, it, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see. Like I got to tell people, you can't turn on the CMTs or uh, country music awards or, you know, almost you know, even the Grammys without seeing former truth members, That's true. former early nineties Christian music players. And, you know, Dan they're Huff. just everywhere. That's all yeah. you got to say is Dan Hoff. Yeah. No one knows that he started Whiteheart. That's right. It's unbelievable. And he's so embarrassed because every time he would come on the road with us, uh-huh. he would come out sometimes to visit a few shows, watch the live show, and we'd get ready to go in to do another record. So he wanted to try to capture as much of that live energy on a record. So he'd come out on a few dates with us. And every once in a while, he'd, he'd play guitar. But as people were walking in, I used to play Whiteheart music with him singing. <laughs> and that it, was the Steve Green era. Yes, yeah, it was. Back it then. was. That's incredible. He's returning. I love, I love those records. And so he would get so embarrassed because uh, I just blast him over the speaker. That's so funny. Yeah, man. I remember when he hit it big because he was a he played on several of our records yes. back in the day. And I mean, he was like the first call guy. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. you know, if you want the best guitar player in town, it's Dan Huff. Then and moved then, out to L.A. and played on... Everything from White Snake to Thriller yeah. to, I mean, he played on everything in the eighties yeah. that I love. Yeah, and then just became a great country country producer after yeah. that. And remember Giant? When yeah, he front of the oh, band Giant, Giant was great. Yeah, yeah. Remember them? I see you <laughs> in my dream. <laughs> you, how many of those songs from that past do you do in Generation Radio? Like, oh, we well. I, I know I just did a complete left turn here, but well, no, just, I, I can switch gears with you. Yeah, uh, okay. you're like, it's like my wife; she's all over the, <laughs> all over the um, No, we we only do like Rascal Flatts. Uh, Dean Castronovo was our first drummer, so we do a lot of Journey. Uh-huh. He went back to Journey. They saw him playing with us, and they were like, "Maybe we need him back." <laughs> so Steve Ferroni now from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers oh, plays drums with us. So we do a lot of Tom Petty, do Flats. We do a ton of Chicago because of Jason. Because of Jason, yeah. Yeah. And so, and then we do, uh, Yankton does uh, one White Snake song, that, uh, Here I Go Again. Oh, nice. Gosh, it's so much fun to play that music. Wow. Every time Jason opens his mouth and sings one of those Chicago songs, I'm like a kid in a candy store, man. I, I can't stop grinning. Like, it's all the stuff that Gosh. I loved growing up. And, and then you, but you produced a Chicago Chicago record. 30. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, Jason and I had become pretty good friends. I left him, uh, this is a cool story, but in 2002, I left him our second record at the Puyallup State Fair uh, Amphitheater. They were there the next night. And the girl that was our runner had been a runner there for like 15 years. And she said, I know Jason really well. If you want to leave a note for him and leave him your CD. I'd been trying to connect with him since our days together. Yeah. You remember Bill had that dat of that record Eventually came out. That Peter Wolf produced. Yes. Yes. It's called the Stone of Sisyphus record, but right. at the time, they weren't going to release it. That's right. So we had a dat that Bill would play for us. It had Bigger Than Elvis on it, 
bunch of great tunes. So I had tried to connect with Jason since those days because I, I really admired the fact that he came in and was able to fill such big shoes left by Peter. And not only that, phenomenal bass player. It just blew my mind that they found the perfect fit. I loved his writing and I loved his role in the band and what he contributed to them. So I always thought it would be cool to connect with him in some way. So I left that album, told him all that in the note that I left. I said, I'm a huge fan. I've always been a huge fan. He called me the next day and he said, man, I don't know that much about country, but I certainly know who you guys are. As a matter of fact, we were watching CMT on the bus last night before the show and your video came on. And I'm so honored that you would call me or leave me this note and leave me the CD. I'd love to connect in Nashville. We immediately became like dear friends. I mean, just like it was magnetic. It was weird. We started writing a bunch together playing a lot of golf, hanging out when we could. We were obviously touring at the same time a bunch, but he ended up being in my wedding saying, will you still love me in my wedding? One of my best friends now for over 25 years. So um, the more that we wrote and the more that we did demos together, it started to sound like Chicago. And so Robert Lamb sat down and was like, we probably should record a record. It's been 12 years since we've done a record. What do you think about Jay producing the record? You guys are doing demos that sound like us anyway. And Jason said, I, I feel like he'd do a really great killer job. He's not only a fan, but he respects the music. He respects the early era of what we did and the 80s. And I think he'd do a great job. Thanksgiving Day, 2005. Robert Lamb calls me. I'm at my mother's on my cell phone. And he says, Jay, this is Robert Lamb. Would you consider producing the next Chicago record? And I just was like, I bet you freaked. Oh my gosh, I'm getting chills now oh. thinking about it. I mean, for a kid that like grew up loving these yeah. guys and, yeah. you know. We cut our teeth on oh, 16, 17, 18, 19. I mean, those were. Everything I loved about music. Oh man, yeah. And, uh, and I immediately said yes. And I said, I'm so honored. And he said, well, you're going to have full autonomy. We're going to let you pick the songs. We're going to let you pick them, dictate the material. And, um, you know, we'll work out budgets later and everything. But we'd like to start within the next couple of months. And that 2006 year was just a whirlwind for me. Um, what hurts the most, it just started to take off. Yeah. We were touring and I was trying to do a record on them at the same time. And I have to say, one of my biggest allies and somebody I leaned on a bunch was Dan Huff. Well, he helped me tremendously through that, kind of gave me great mentoring advice. And, you know, I'm working with legends and I'm in there trying to tell horn players that they're out of tune. Yeah. That have played on. Yeah. How do you do that? Right. You know, right, right. I, I'm like, and I'm nervous and I'm going, guys, it's not gelling yet. It'd been a minute since they'd played in the studio together. So, you know, and Panko was, he was a little crotchety with me and he was <laughs> like, I need to come in and listen. <laughs> and I never will forget I had a breakthrough with him in Los Angeles. We're in this first day of doing horns and they weren't in tune. I mean, it was just, you could tell just weren't in tune yet. And the third time I said, I'm so sorry, guys, I'm not trying to wear your lips out or wear you guys out, but we're, we're not there. He threw his headphones down. He said, I want to come in and listen, turn the horns up. Came in, turned the horns up and I'm sitting there going, I'm fired. He's going to send me home today. I'm fired. And uh, after we listened to the tune, he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, the kid's right. We're out of tune. We got to do it again. And he never questioned me after that. Never said anything to me. But that was a watershed moment wow. in making that record. Wow. Yeah, but that wasn't the first record you produced. No. We haven't talked about that. You, when did you start producing albums? I started pretty early on. Uh, I produced a couple little custom projects in college. And then uh, Michael English is the one that gave me my real first shot uh, when I produced his gospel record for Curb. Mm -hmm. Michael's another one of those guys that I just grew up loving his voice and yeah. kind of idolized his style and all of his music. And I never forget, you guys were like neck and neck. We had Michael's first cassette and, you know, Face the Nation's cassette in the, in the console. Oh, man, my, that first Michael English record oh, man. was just one of the, still the best oh. I've ever heard. Uh, Brandon um, Bannister produced that, I think. Yes. And, oh, just we went because he went out on tour with us. Yeah, we had that was our first Cobill tour. Was after we'd done a you know a year or so of just traveling on our own, and and then uh, we they they put Michael with us, and it was like 
this is the big leagues. Now we're yeah. seeing our crowds double, triple, and Mike bring the house down every single night. I mean, 6'3", long hair, oh, good-looking yeah. dude. He was, yeah, he was oh, the my real goodness. deal. Yeah. Like a, he had movie star look. Yeah, you know did. what I mean? Back then, he, he was like... Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I played for him at Lee Day, and he totally remembered that. Like years later, I toured with Michael after that record for a few years while uh-huh. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I needed to make a living. And so yeah. Bo Cooper called me up and he said, oh, why yeah. don't you come play bass for Michael? And um, I'd played a lot of bass because I'd been playing bass for um, East to West. So I was pretty well seasoned on bass by that point. And uh-huh. I went out and started playing with Michael. We became fast friends. So much fun together to stand on stage with him every night and listen to him sing Out on My Knees oh. and In Christ Alone. Oh. I mean, oh, you, you talk about being lost in the music and in the anointing of somebody that is so gifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a rare, rare experience. Yeah. It, that's, it's, uh, it was, guys sometimes like, it felt guys like, like Michael don't come along very often. They don't. And it just, he's got to savor it. When you're on stage with them or when you're in the, the room with them, just because it's just, it's just like God gave them an extra little touch. I know. And a little blessing on them. and Makes you sick. <laughs> it kind of does. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, I, you know, you talk about the, the matinee idol looks and, and just being tall and all. I just remember touring with him just going, I don't belong here. Well, I, just, I, just don't. I mean, I, honestly, Andy, I felt that way every time I was around greatness like you guys. I always felt inadequate. And my... Bill Gaither said something one time to Danny Murray that always stuck with me. It's like, if you're not the best in the room, put people around you that are so that you rise to the occasion. And I always knew that I had some giftings and I could play and I could sing a little bit, but I wasn't the best singer, but I wanted to be around the best singers because I felt like it made me better. So I always tried to put people around me that challenged me to be better than I knew I was. And, you know, to all, all credit to God, he led people to me that definitely made me better, and, and I've benefited it because of it. But every time I would stand on stage with Michael next to him, he's one of those guys, too. It's funny. Have you ever been on stage with one of those guys that, like, they're singing and they sound, you know, he's like, I don't know if I can make it tonight. He's yeah. kind of whispering. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And he's out there singing, and you're like, I don't think he has another gear tonight. I don't think he's going to go there. And then all of a sudden, he's got this other gear. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where it comes from. Yep. You don't know how he got there, but it's just like otherworldly. Yeah. And I, I was just so honored to benefit from that for so long being around. I him. think we all drafted from each other. You yeah. know, you, you said it right. Surround yourself with, with people who are better than you and people that you can, you can draft. A, beside. I mean, that's how I came up in the industry was I felt like I was singing for my life every night. Mm-hmm. And I try to pass this on to the, the younger generation to to help them get to that next gear, just to go, you got to be better tomorrow night than you were last night. And you got to, you, you don't know who's going to be there. Yeah. You don't get to take a night off. That's you right. take every, you take every opportunity to do the best that you can and push to that next place because that's how you get yeah. into the rhythm of a career and people wanting to hear you again. And that's what we all did, right? You, you you can't afford to take a night off. You can't. You can't. Have, have Although I do, I remember one thing Larnell Harris said to me though that was brilliant. I was asking him about his stamina and about how he could sing so many nights and yeah. so such challenging material. You know, singing uh-huh. in the rafters. He was like, "Yeah, I've been asked that a bunch. You know, I know when I'm singing in Des Moines, Iowa, and I know when I got to sing in Chicago. <laughs> so I leave a little extra in the tank <laughs> when I know I got to sing in Chicago." <laughs> No offense to anybody in Des Moines, Iowa listening no, right now. I, but I'll but tell you. I there's dis- some truth to that, though. There is some truth, but I will disagree with it. I mean, that's not my personality. Yeah. My personality is, I don't know if I'm going to get to Chicago tomorrow. Yeah. So if 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 Des Moines, Iowa is it, then go get everything I've got. You're, and, just, you're just trying to butter up to the people in Des Moines right yeah, now. Yeah, I love you, Des Moines. <laughs> I want to come see you sometime. All right, let's talk about this for a second. So Let me ask you a question right. first. I know this sure. is your podcast, but I got to know this. Bring it. When did you know that you could sing so high? How old were you? Oh, I don't know. So um, I've always had this really strong voice. So I was a big fish in a small pond growing up in Waco, Texas, and nobody to push me. 
I didn't grow up in with a lot of other musicians. There was no one casting a vision that you could dream that you could be an artist. You know, yeah. I would just sing in church, and I knew I had a really strong voice. My brother was ten years older than me, and he was a minister of music, so he would bring me up on stage what the churches he was at, and I'd sing. And I started listening to. I was a mimicker, so I would listen to Russ Taft, and oh, okay. I would listen to Kenny Loggins, and I would listen to just all these great vocalists of the 70s and 80s and try to make my voice sound like them. But I don't think I was really aware of the power that I had and the range that I had. I, when I got into truth, I, I just remember I was the youngest one. I was the only one that didn't have a music degree. And I just felt like this peon. Like, yeah. I'm just like, I, I just want to sing one more night. And so there was something in me that made me work really hard. And when I would hear, I would hear Mark sing something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I wanted to, I wanted to be better than Mark, but I, I was like, okay, well, I can do that. So let me try it. And um, and then when Marty came around and he would sing way up there, I'd be like, okay, I can do that too. Yeah. I don't really know. I think there was at some point I never got my voice until even well, even when I heard Where There Is Faith when it came out uh, and and you know launched for him's career. I don't think I got my voice until like way later on, maybe until the, the ride record. Really? When I first started, I mean, when I went in the studio the first time with Michael Amardian, yeah, which was just a mind blowing experience that I never thought would happen to me. And I sang the real thing through a couple of times and then went in the booth and listened to it. And I was like, Oh, I think that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think, I think maybe I can continue to do this yeah. and, and make my mark in music, but I don't know, man. I don't have an answer for you. I think I was just gifted to do it, and I was dumb enough Did you uh, realize to not you, quit and just keep singing harder and higher. And Do you realize that you could flip so easily back then between your head voice and your chest voice, and you bridge that gap so naturally? So, I don't know. I mean, again, I try to teach this. Yeah. I do. I, I've I been think, studying a lot with Valerie Morehouse the past three years, yeah. and it's harder than what people think it, it is. is. It is. Mm-hmm. And I don't, again, I tell people this when I'm coaching them. Is that, listen, I might be a freak. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just I just might. God may have just given well, me think- a little something extra. But I also worked my tail off yeah. to get my vocal to where it was. And I just never. So Kenny Loggins, right? Let's go back to Kenny Loggins. I always wanted to sound like him. And I, I never heard him break. I always, always heard this really seamless vocal that went from his chest to his lower throat to his upper throat to his head and it never sounded like it broke yeah and i was like i just want to sound like that and so i would force myself to push past my break notes and i didn't realize i was doing that until that halfway through my for him career and i would listen back and go and and people would ask me that how when do you go to your head voice i'm like i don't think i do i think i just sing higher from my chest and you know Here's the thing, bro. I've never lost my voice. Yeah, that's maybe amazing. one night. Maybe one yeah. night. I could. I really had a tough time singing, but it's a for me. It's always been a real healthy way to sing. I've never really lost. That's so great. Any of that power, even at fifty-seven years old. So no, I know. Um, I, I, last year when I heard you, it's like it's as clear and as powerful and as pristine as it's ever been. And I've often wondered that. It's funny, Chris Rodriguez played in Kenny's band for uh-huh. years, and he's in Generation Radio. Yeah, I love Chris. We were talking about the fact that he, Kenny is singing so much softer on verses than you would ever imagine, saving it for the spots that he yeah. has to sing with power Yeah, and high. Well, you have to know how to spend your cash. Yeah. And you know this, yeah. you know, being on tour, that you have to know when to spend it and when to hold on to it, but you can still bring that intensity and that passion mm-hmm. through everything. So I don't know. Again, I teach vocals. Uh, I, I, you know, I try to get other artists ready to, you know, launch their careers and go in the studio. And, you know, I'm just a big fan of like, just go for it. Yeah. You know, just keep singing from the chest, just keep pushing up and, and just bypass those natural blocks that your voice wants to give you. And, you know, I think it, be, I just gives you a better sound i think so that. too so, i also think it matters how you hear yourself back in a live situation if you yes. can't hear yourself very well you're mm-hmm. going to spend it really really that's quickly right trying to hear yourself that's right oh and you just you learn that on the road if you don't pick yeah. it up quick i know a lot of 
of singers that I've toured with that just didn't make it past six weeks or more because they would they yeah. didn't know how to not blow their chops out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Rick Florian earlier, you know, uh, talking to him when he went out on his first tour with Whiteheart, there's those first few shows. He's like, the hardest thing was managing my energy and my adrenaline because I would find, he said, I would find I would blow all of my energy and my vocal out in the first three songs. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh no, I've got an hour and a half of high energy that. singing left to do. So again, that's just something you end up working out on the road. But again, the, the, the herd kind of thins as you get into this industry mm-hmm. of can you sing, can you, can you bring it on command, and can you do it for the duration, and can you get up the next night and do it again? Yeah, I totally and, agree. Yeah, and there's just not many that can do it. I, I just, God bless me in that way, but I have, feel like I've worked harder than most of the people that I was around during those years. I'm just like, I doubled down. I didn't write songs. I didn't produce. I didn't really learn to play an instrument like flawlessly. I was like, I'm just going to double, triple down on my voice and well, just make that my calling card. That was a good move because so, no. you're certainly one of the best ever to do. Well, I appreciate that. You're very kind. No, I, I'm, I mean it. Well, I want to go here. I want to, I want to, this is a question. You want to be in Generation Radio? Yeah. Hey, when, if Jason needs to take a break, just let me know. Yeah, I'm telling you something. You know, what was funny for me is singing beside Jason every night and watching his endurance and what yeah. he does with it. I mean, he's a freak of nature too, Yeah, is what forced me back into taking voice because I was having to sing Bill Champlin's parts on the Chicago oh, man. stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I, I'm not going to go up there and make a fool out of myself singing beside Jason. I want to do it halfway justice. Yeah. To be able to deliver these songs at the level they've been delivered at. And first of all, no one can do what Bill Champlin does. Right. He's a maestro. But that's what caused me to really take a hard look. And I'd been doing things incorrectly for years and not even realized it. Yeah. Because when you sang for somebody like Danny, he'd just go find a way to get there. Right. I don't care what you got to do. Oh, yeah. Just find a way to get there. Oh, yeah. So some of the things you would do to your voice, mm-hmm. they're not sustainable when you get older. Oh, I had coaches back in those days just say, I better see you lying on the floor with blood squirting out of your neck before yeah. you give up on on not hitting the pitch. Yeah. Like whatever you got to do to get there. Yeah. And that's bad advice for a lot of people. But, it you is. know, if you've, if you've worked out a system, you can, you can get through all of that in yeah. a healthy way. But so here's what I want to know. I want to know what it was like for you going from Christian music to country music. Because there's a lot of similarities. Country music and, and, and Christian music are linked, I think, in a way that's very natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bridge there is not, not, not that hard to cross. But you went from a gospel environment to a secular environment yeah. pretty quick. What was that like? Like, what, what were some of the maybe the pitfalls or, you know, how did you guard your faith and how did you continue to? you know, really keep your roots down in your faith as you went into the secular world? Well, that's a deeply loaded question. And I'll give you some truths if you want me to. Sure. Yeah. And you can edit as you, <laughs> as you feel the need. To. Or not. Or not. Um, I, I had a crisis of faith myself after East to West was over because a lot of things had gone bad. I felt like I was in God's will. I was dating somebody in the industry that I felt like I was destined to marry and it fell apart and we were trying to honor God. I was trying to honor God with that relationship and felt like I was on the path that he had set for me. And then through a series of um, bad decisions and mistakes, um, that career fell apart. And so I was in a dark spot during that time and takes me back to my relationship with Michael English. In a lot of ways, Michael and I were bad medicine for each other because we were both hurt by the industry and people that called themselves our friends and were there were suddenly scattered like cockroaches, you know? So it was, I looked around, I was like, everything I've known in this town and everybody that said they were, they loved me and they were there for me, it just disappeared. And so those three years on the road with Michael weren't shining moments for Jada Marcus, the person. I, I, um, I started to act out a lot and do things that I normally wouldn't do and, you know, drinking so much more and just sort of like questioning everything that had gotten me there because I felt like once again, that I'd done everything that, you know, textbook wise that you were supposed to do to be a Christian artist and to be out sharing the gospel with people and winning souls for Jesus. And all of a sudden I was in this spot of 
the rug was pulled out from under me and I didn't know what I believed and why I believed in anymore. I knew, you know, there was always that tug on my heart and the foundation was strong that my mom put in me as, as a kid. So I always felt the pull and I always felt convicted and I always felt the struggle, but I needed to, God really needed to do a work on me and, and strip some of the things away from me that were very super superficial and just me going through the motions of having gone to a Christian college and a Christian record deal. And I needed to really find out that I believed in the grace of Jesus Christ because it was real for me. It needed to be real for me. And those things had to happen to bring me back home to where I really believed in what I believed in because I chose to, not because someone told me to. And I'm grateful for those times, albeit in the moment, they were very, very painful for me. As I look back now, I know why it had to happen and how I had to grow. But um, as things started to happen in country music, I was a stronger Christian at that point in time than I was in many ways than when I was in East to West. And so it was easy for me to be a believer in that environment. And thankfully, too, in Joe, Don, and Gary, I had two other guys that were also believers, also had great parents that instilled that in them in their early years. And so for the three of us, we were like-minded. We were believers that happened to be in a country band, um, making the music that we wanted to make. And in a lot of ways, I'll be honest with you, Andy, it was freeing because when you're singing Christian music, you sing about basically one thing. And to explore different scenarios and sing about love and relationships and, and hurt and, and things like that was freeing to me as a songwriter. It was just a broader canvas for me to paint on. And thank God, you know, God blessed my efforts and the door started to open. And so when I got into Christian music, the funny thing that I found was, or, or in country music, it was less judgmental. There weren't as many people sitting around waiting on you to stumble and waiting on you to fall. Which people don't really in, uh, understand that about Christian music was yeah. that. As much as we were all, you know, singing about the same thing, basically, like you said, we're singing yeah. about life in Christ. It's also a razor's edge. Yes. And there are people throwing, if you're, it's like walking a tight, tight rope and people are throwing rocks at yeah. you the whole time. Yeah. We're still human beings. And I, I don't, grace is never a, a get out of jail free card to give you uh, the license to do whatever you want to do. But, um, we're still flawed. We still make mistakes. And a lot of times in those early days of Christian music, you, you slip up one time or you make one bad decision and you're excommunicated, basically. And I found in many ways, and I'm not saying all, I would never stereotype. I found more true believers in country music than I did sometimes in Christian music. And, and I remember one time specifically, this is, uh, remember when Houston was still here on West End? So I'm there having dinner. Uh, some of my family's in town, and I had a glass of red wine on the table because we, we were eating steak. And I got called by somebody from, it may have even been Don Cook. A couple days later, I get this phone call from somebody at Benson. It may have been Andy or Don or somebody. And were you at Houston's the other night? Yes, I was. Do you have wine at your table? Uh, I, I think, I, yeah, we might, yeah, I, we probably did. Okay. Well, um, we got a couple very concerned people that you were out in public drinking and it just blew my mind that that's what they zeroed in on. Uh, and, and when I got to country music, I felt like, well, nobody's going to look at me in a restaurant now and see me with a glass of wine and think that I'm going to hell. It was just some sort of freedom in some way to be a believer and be a Christian, but be who I want to be instead of on some pedestal somebody set me up on only to wait to see if they can knock me off of it. That's what I felt like in a lot of ways. And so I, I found the country music industry to be very, very welcoming and very loving and very supportive. And I'll tell you this, in a lot of ways, uh, better business people. We actually got paid for the work we did. We actually, you know, I would go to a concert and collect the check after the show instead of, you know, some preacher going, well, we, we took up an offer and didn't get as much as we'd hoped for, but you boys can buy you some burgers on the way back home. You know, yeah. you know that, that kind of thing was troubling and disconcerting 
early on in my Christian uh-huh. music career. Uh-huh. So, and there's a lot of that. There's yeah. a lot of that, but on the same side of the coin, I will say I wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for the early days in Christian music and what that meant to me and what that did for me. That's why I still produced records in Christian music because it's whole in your heart that can never be filled. Even though I had a great blessing of a career in Rascal Flats, there is something in Christian music and gospel music and the message that it carries that you cannot replicate or duplicate anywhere. There is a power in it that you cannot find anywhere else. And I missed that. Years into my flats career, I was like, you know, I still miss that. Those times when you can stand on stage and lead a crowd into worship and feel the power of God fall. Even though there are times that are great, you know, in the flat stage and you're singing songs like God Bless the Broken Road, it's not quite the same. Do you feel like that 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 there's like this this deeper calling, like not deeper, but a deep calling to to be in that lane of Christian music, like like from your early days of like this is something I'm never really supposed to leave, yeah. and you know that that was always kind of in the background of what you're doing through your flat stage. I, I did, and and I was, and I there was a part of me early on that felt guilty a little bit, like maybe I had abandoned that because I went to a Pentecostal church growing up. And I, somebody prophesied over me that that was the call on my life and that was what I was supposed to do. Wow. But I quickly reshaped my thinking in that I had a bigger platform than I had ever had before. And I could choose to sneak the gospel in with the flats yeah. and live my life and be, a, be, gosh, a tool for Christ in a different way in front of a bigger audience, in front of a different audience than I would have ever been able to reach on an East to West stage. And so that became a great responsibility for me. And we were very deliberate in our band about doing songs on our records that expressed our faith in some way, shape, or form. Joel Osteen came to a show of ours one time in Houston, and he said, what I love about seeing you guys is you've got people out there partying, drinking, having a good time, singing summer nights. But by the end of the show, they leave there and they don't even realize that you've snuck the message in on them. And it made me so proud of what we were able to do because we were intentional, very intentional about making sure that somewhere in the show, we talked about what our truth was and who we believed in and where our strength came from. And we would, I mean, we sang, oh, the blood of Jesus before, because we, we told this little story. I don't know how many times you got to see us live, but we tell the story about how we were all raised in church. Yeah. So we do a little gospel music. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Leading into Broken Road. And people would go crazy, man. I think that a lot of the fans that are fans of K-Love are a lot of the fans that go to see a flat show. Yep. You're 100% right. And, And look how God, you know, not to be corny here, but how God blessed your Broken Road, you know, through going through a fire in that season of your life that made you have to choose. And that's one of the, you know, I think that's one of the downsides of being in Christian ministry is you don't, your, your, your path is chosen for you. Your message is chosen for you. Yeah. You're already going that direction. You, you get into the secular world, the non-Christian world, and you have to choose daily a little more overtly, right? That this is who I am. This is what I believe. And, and I'm going to make, a stand and a statement today for my faith. And now look how God has taken all that massive success that you've had with Rascal Flats, and you're able to pour so much of that now into a Christian record label and continue to make gospel music again that's reaching the hearts for, of, for, uh, of people for Christ all over the world. I mean, and what an incredible story. I, I'm grateful for it every day, and it's not lost on me. It really isn't. And I'm so thankful that I was able to have so many people in my life. I wrote a book uh, about my life's journey called Shotgun Angels. It's on Amazon right now for seven ninety nine. <laughs> um, but but it it details all of those moments in my life, and and I called the book Shotgun Angels for a reason because there were times that people came along uh, in my most desperate hour when I needed uh, an ounce of hope or I needed a a, a thread of um, encouragement from somebody because. There were a lot of times that I did consider 
giving up music after the East to West thing fell apart. And I was sort of just adrift on a sea here of loneliness a little bit because I wasn't sure what was next. And I called my mom at one point. I was like, I'm coming back home. And she was like, no, you're not. I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You're going to stay there. It's where God has called you to be. I didn't even know if I really believed that at that point in time, to be honest. And then I went through this thing where somebody broke into my apartment, stole my bass guitars and my keyboards, and I didn't even have anything to go make a living with. And I'd been going to Corner Music that was down, uh, you know, on 12th South forever. It's since moved. But there's a guy named JD that I'd known for years that had always seen me in there and knew who I was. And I got the gig with Shelly Wright, and I didn't have a keyboard to make a living with. And I went in there, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, JD. And he goes, well, you've been coming in here for years. And uh, won't you go pick out what you need to do this gig with? And if you can scrape together a couple hundred dollars and put down a down payment, you can come bring me some money every week. You get a paycheck. If it's $50, great, 100 bucks. You just pay it off as you go, but I'll, I'll give you something to go to work with. So people like that, it almost makes me emotional thinking about it, but people like that, they were in my life at a specific time when I needed it the most that kept me going, that kept me moving forward. And I was thinking while you were talking too, I remember specifically driving down 65 South, all these questions of uncertainty and where there's faith came on. Oh, wow. And it just, it made me bawl. I mean, I was sobbing like a baby and I've heard that song a million times. But in that season of my life, it was another one of those times that I knew somehow or another, even though I couldn't see it, that I needed to keep moving forward and I needed to trust more than I'd ever trusted before that God was sovereign and was going to get me through it. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. If you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Chrisman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychrisman.net, for information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast.